One of my life verses is a strange little verse from 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. It's in the middle of a list, uh, listing all the people that were among David's mighty men, his soldiers. And it says, Of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, twenty chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. I see myself as a pastor, but also in my own personal wiring and gifts to be uh, called to the same kind of work, to be a man of Issachar, to try to understand the times and try to describe what the people of God ought to do. And so I feel called to, uh, to talk about what's going on in our country and in our world uh, over this month. I am not by nature a very political person. I do not follow politics very closely. Um, what exactly happened in the election this week, I haven't tracked very close. It's just who I am. Um, I normally don't talk about it very much. But I feel as a pastor that, that there's enough going on in this world um, that I need to kind of respond and, and talk about it. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who you should vote for, what you should think about certain issues. What, I, what I'm more interested in is the underlying how you get to those conclusions, right? What are the biblical and theological perspectives that Christians should have as they approach their opinions and actions in politics? Now, I would guess if, if you've gone to church for any length of time, you've probably had people at church and maybe even pastors tell you who you should vote for and tell you what you should think about certain issues. But I'm willing to bet that, that probably nobody here has ever been taught how to come to those conclusions yourself. What are the things you should do to approach how you make your own decisions about politics? And about that goes for any number of issues in this life. Church has not always been good at teaching people how to think. They've tried to teach people what to think. And I'm interested in the how to think question. Now, I've had several pe- a number of people tell me how brave I am to talk about this topic, which has freaked me out more than a little bit. I didn't know I was being brave. I actually think it's kind of sad, really, that you have to be brave to try to talk about some of these issues. In our, like, where did we come to where, where you can't talk about these issues? Um, I guess I feel like we're just living in such a time of angst and upheaval. And that the heart of much of this worry is not political, it's actually spiritual. And that as a pastor, I need to comment on it. So so we're going to try the best. I mean, can you remember a time of more fear, more polarization, and more fighting in our political system? Where discussions were filled with such hate and dishonesty. Where government seemed like such the opposite of servants of the people where people disliked the main presidential candidate so strongly, and many people disliked both presidential candidates strongly. Racial tensions are high. This is one of the first times where we might wonder whether freedom of speech and freedom of religion may remain uh, American staples forever. We're unsure if the America that we inherited from our parents and from our grandparents are the same, is the same America that our children and our grandchildren might know. Now the danger in wading into all these topics 
is that they tend to be pretty emotional topics for people. They tend to be things that people hold on to very tightly and get defensive over. Their politics, their political parties, and their beliefs. And we live in a time when people are quick to be angry, to attack, and to jump to conclusions about what they heard rather than really listen. Fear has a very powerful influence on the way we speak, the way we act, and the way we hear. But we live a faith that talks about grace and forgiveness. And we are a people that are supposed to have fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And I'm not sure that I see a lot of those things when I turn on the news. I'm not sure I see a lot of those things when I see a lot of these political discussions. But I think we as the church need to nurture those things. And I think this sermon series and these discussions is probably as good a time as any for us to try to model that kind of grace and patience with each other. So let's be careful and let's jump in. To begin with, um, I want to start in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, looking at a conversation that Jesus had with some Pharisees. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are a true, that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render unto God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him. And went away. The reading of God's word. The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. So they ask him if it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the ruler of the Roman Empire. It's a trap because Jesus, if Jesus says yes, the Jews are going to get really mad at him, right? If he says yes, you got to pay your taxes to Caesar, the Jews are going to be up in arms. You could, you have to, we have to pay taxes to Caesar. Caesar is the occupying army. You mean we have to be loyal to the occupying army? On the other hand, if Jesus says no, then the Pharisees can get him in trouble with the Romans for saying that people don't have to pay taxes to Caesar. It's sort of a darned if you do, darned if you don't kind of moment. And so, Jesus sees right through their test and reacts brilliantly. He says, get out a coin. So they get out a denarius, which has Caesar's picture, and it says the current Caesar on the coin. And he, and he says, whose picture's on there? Who's, whose likeness is on the coin? And they say, well, it's Caesar. And he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled. They, 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 he got right out of their trap. They, they couldn't get him. They marveled. They have to kind of go away in defeat. Because, man, this guy's quick. He's quick. 
But Jesus' response not only shows his brilliance, it is also very informative for how we should approach faith in politics. For Jesus, there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of this world, and then there's the kingdom he keeps trying to tell his people about. Sometimes called the kingdom of God, sometimes called the kingdom of heaven in the texts. Jesus has this understanding that Caesar has some authority in the kingdom of this world. Okay, he, There's something going on in this world where Caesar has power and that we do owe Caesar something. Anybody who has the right to put their name and their face on the coin has some authority that you better pay attention to. And yet there's this other kingdom, this kingdom that we're a part of, called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Listen to how Jesus puts it in his prayer for his disciples on the night he was betrayed in John 17. And starting in verse 14, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus looks at his disciples, he's praying for them, knowing he's about to die, knowing the angst that they're about to go through as they watch him die, as they see the world sort of crumble around them. And he prays to God, acknowledging the fact that they are not of this world, but that they are in this world. And that somehow they need to be in this world, but not of it. Listen to how Paul says it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. In 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Paul uses very political language. We are citizens of heaven. Paul was a person who understood citizenship. He was a dual citizen, he was a Jewish citizen, and he had a Jewish name, Saul. And he was a Roman citizen and he had a Roman name, Paul. Um, He was a person that understood citizenship. And he uses this language to say, all right, we're in this world. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we are sitting in this world waiting for our Savior to come and transform the world This gets us to the very interesting part of Jesus' second line after saying, render unto Caesar. He says, into God the things that are God's. And everything is God's. As Paul says, that uh, he is going to subject all things to himself. Or the Psalms 24 says it this way, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. Some translations say the earth is the world, the Lord's and everything in it. Or the theologian Abram Kuyper once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. We live in this world, but we are citizens of another kingdom. We live here as an outpost, a colony in this kingdom, announcing the kingdom that, it was in, that is to come. Theologians uh, Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon call Christians resident aliens. I love that phrase. Resident aliens. 
Now, we live here, we have residence here, but we are aliens. We are citizens of somewhere else. And we believe that someday the kingdom of God will come and take over the kingdom of this world. We wait for that day. And we try to care for the world as if it's God's while we wait for Him to make that final move. But there's a set of difficult questions that follows this two-kingdom mentality and this biblical conviction that we are citizens of another kingdom. What is the relationship between these two kingdoms? And how do we live in both? How do we live as citizens of heaven and still render unto Caesar? How can we stay in the world, but not of it, but also not out of it, not, not away from it? We're still in it. These questions have been at the heart of the American experiment since America declared its independence. Many of the people who came to this new world came because they were fleeing from persecution of state religions in Europe. The Puritans, uh, the Presbyterians, even the Catholics were finding themselves in persecution in Europe and came here to establish freedom of religion, a freedom of a place where religion and state government were the same thing. Part of the vision of this new nation was that there would never be a state religion. Thomas Jefferson said it this way in a letter in 1802. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting of an establishment of religion or prohibiting the, exercise, the free exercise thereof thus building a wall of separation between church and state. This is not an original phrase to Jefferson, but it's really this part of Jefferson's letter that gives us the language in America of separation in church and state. It's not actually in our founding documents at all. It's in a letter that Jefferson used. But, but it's something that the forefathers believed in, that there should always be a separation, a wall, some kind of separation so that religion and national government are never the same thing. Never the same thing. In light of this, why has America frequently been described over the years as a Christian nation? Well, to be clear, historically clear, there has never been a moment in American history where everyone was a Christian. We know that because there were people here before we got here and they were not Christians. There has never been a moment where everybody in America was a Christian. Christian was, Christianity was never accepted as the religion, the religion, the established religion of the American government. While our founding documents of our generally uh, refer to God and a creator, there's no specific Christian language in any of our documents. It's general God language. The forefathers were not all Christians, though many were. For example, John Witherspoon was a Presbyterian minister, very influential in writing the Declaration of Independence, in modeling and in describing the way our government should function. In fact, the American government is modeled a lot after Presbyterian polity, believe it or not. That's a lot the influence of John Witherspoon. Um, other founding fathers were not Christians. Ben Franklin would be considered what's called a deist, a general, uh, a general believer in God, but not a believer in any of the specific Christian claims. No belief that Jesus would have been God. 
Thomas Jefferson, actually, would probably most be described as a Unitarian. He actually published a book called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, in which he literally took a razor and glue and went through the Gospels and cut out all of the spaces where there were miracles, where there were references to God and any references to the divinity of Jesus, and published what was a very short book of basically the moral teachings of Jesus. He wanted the moral teachings of Jesus without Jesus being God. Despite the fact that America was never all Christian, that the forefathers were not all Christian, um, America was founded on a very strong and agreed upon Judeo-Christian ethic. The forefathers would not have agreed on who Jesus was. But they would have agreed that we need moral people for society to work and that faith was an important part of that moral fiber. George Washington said this during his farewell address, September 19, 1795. Uh, Washington had served his two terms. They wanted him to continue, but he would not do it because they agreed on uh, two terms. So he gives this wonderful address, and here is what he said. Of all the dispositions and habits which led to a political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism. Who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens? The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and cherish them. For society to work, it needs moral people. Moral people need to be developed by religion and by the church. Government cannot develop moral people. Government can try to control behavior, but it cannot develop internal morals. You can't do it. Religion has to do that. And the forefathers understood that we need both. We need both to survive. Here's what has happened in America. Christianity, particularly Protestant Christianity, has always had a place of prominence and dominance and been the majority view in this country. How many can remember debates when JFK was being elected and people thought, how could we have a Catholic president? All right? How could we have a, how far have we come? I think the number of true believers that are genuinely trying to follow Christian principles in their lives has always been relatively small. But America has always had generations of people who were at least nominally Christian. They at least said they believed in God. They at least called themselves Christian, even if in practice you didn't see much of it in their lives. The world is different today. We are not living in anything resembling a quote-unquote Christian nation anymore. And I think a lot of Christians are in denial about just how morally corrupt we are anymore. How many of you can remember the blue laws? Remember when there wasn't things open on Sundays? You couldn't go anywhere. Now, I'm, I'm young enough to not know that, to, to know that things were open on Sunday. But I remember seeing people at lunch on Sunday afternoon I was a pastor's kid. I was at church. And I knew they weren't at church. But people used to dress up to go out to lunch on Sunday morning so it looked like they went to church even if they didn't because they didn't want anybody thinking they didn't. How far have we come? 
I can remember when pastors wouldn't do marriages if people lived together before they were married. I got news for you. I would be out of the marriage business if that was the case now. How far has the world come? How much has the time changed? And the Christian voice is not the dominant voice anymore. In fact, it's an unwelcome minority voice in an increasing way. But you see, this is part of Christianity's history. The church began as a fringe movement, a minority position that gained strength as it shared between cultures and people on the fringes, not with power. Since that time, since Constantine has a Christian Roman Empire in the 300s, Christianity has always struggled when it has power. Whenever Christianity is linked to the political structures of its day too closely, whether that's a state religion or whether it's just the dominant position, um, it's been disastrous for both church and state. What ends up happening is the church ends up relying on its political power to get things done instead of relying on Jesus Christ and each other. You end up getting a weaker church. When you get a weaker church, you, get a, you, you, get a, you, you fail to create and develop moral people in a society. And that ends up really impacting the government because the government, as I said, cannot create moral people. And the government then ends up trying to create moral people. But what they end up trying to do really is control people's behavior. End up trying to control people's behavior. Again and again and again, we can see this in history uh, from the Roman Empire to uh, the Middle Ages where the church really ran anything to uh, the history of Germany is a history plagued with this kind of trend. Compare that to the church around the world. Right now the church is booming in Africa. Right now the church is booming in Asia. The church is growing in secret in a lot of Muslim nations. And in Europe and in America where we have complete freedom of religion, we have what has to be described as a stagnant and very homogenous church where we get together with the people that look like us and think like us and we don't cross-pollinate ideas and we don't have a strong church. The problem is exacerbated by the way the church has outsourced much of its work to the government. Let me be really clear on this biblically. It's our job to care for the poor. It's our job to care for orphans. It's our job to care for widows. And I know a lot of Christians that get really mad when the government doesn't do a good job at caring for some of these things or doesn't care for these things in the, with the love and the compassion command by the Bible. But of course government's not going to act like the church. It's our job. We've given away a lot of our work over to the government and it's caused a lot of problems. And now we have a lot of churches that are really struggling financially. But at the same time, we're all expected to pay our taxes to governments for doing things that I think, biblically, the church should be doing. Now, I wish I had more answers for you today. We could go on and on about a lot of this stuff. But today, I primarily just wanted to provide some context for this discussion, understanding how we got here. So let me just end with a couple of core baseline convictions. Number one. Christians should care about what is going on in the world around us. Okay? There's no room for Christians with blinders. No room for putting our head in the sand. The world is God's after all. Created by Him, 
fought, fought back from sin by Jesus on the cross, and He's coming back for it someday, I think we should care about it. Number two, Christians should know what is going on, vote their convictions, have dialogue about issues, consider running for office, and pray for our government officials. You can't say that you care and then just sit back and complain about it but not do anything. You have to act. Number three, the best thing the church can do for the world around it, for our nation and for the people in it, is be a strong church. We have a responsibility to develop moral people, to build community where these things can be talked about and dealt with in a loving way, and to take care of the poor, the orphans, and the disenfranchised. You want to make America strong? You want to make America great? Be a strong church. It will have the impact that the forefathers thought it could. And this is probably the most important thing that I wish all Christians could hear, and I'm going to say it in every Bible study and every Sunday school and every sermon this whole time. Remember where your true citizenship lies. Remember that you are citizens of another kingdom because that is where your hope truly lies. And no matter who the president is, what the policies are, what the parties do, your hope lies elsewhere. Always be keeping that in mind. Let's pray. Father God, be our hope. Be our guide. Be our leader. May we rely on you in these times. We pray this in Jesus' name.